desert of northern New Mexico. This is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Glenn Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our, our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. If all the world's a stage and men and women are merely players, what can an artistic director of opera, a musical composer, and an educational designer and therapist tell us about how life is or should be, as it turns out, a lot. On this edition of the Circle for Original Thinking, we go behind the curtain to get a glimpse of what it takes to get an opera company up and running, the artistic process, the place of art, music, and psychology in our lives. We delve into the artistic minds behind the theory of everything, an original opera commissioned by the Encompass Opera Company. We explore why opera moves us, how a composer and librettist work together, the intersection of leading-edge science and indigenous ways of knowing, and more. What can contemporary opera reveal about the state of modern society? How can it change minds, hearts, and values? To find out, join Nancy Rhodes, John David Ernest, and Roger Jeff Cunningham on this edition of Circle for Original Thinking. Welcome to the guests, and I, I want to introduce uh, introduce you. I'm going to start with John David, who was the, who was the only person I have met, so I, I apologize. After after this show, John, John David, I'll be able to introduce you even better, but um, now I'm going off uh, exactly what you sent me. So John David Ernest is a composer who has written for orchestra, chamber ensembles, chorus, solo voice, concert, band, opera, and film. In addition to several one-act operas, his first full-length opera, The Theory of Everything, was commissioned by the Encompass New Opera Theater, a collaboration with Nancy Rhodes, of course, who wrote the libretto. A longtime resident of New York City, Mr. Ernest has taught music composition both privately and as a visiting professor at Whitman College in Washington, and as well as doing adjunct teaching for Lehman College and Rutgers University. So welcome, John David. Thank and you. next, uh, <laughs> hello today. Uh, now I want to introduce uh, Roger because I'm, I'm building to you, Nancy. You're the diva here, so we're going to get to you. So Roger Jeff Cunningham is a co-founder of Encompass New Opera Theater. He's gone on to teach psychology in college, and he created the Dream Table, which meets weekly and allows his students to discuss their nighttime dreams and nightmares. I love nightmares. That word uh, 
It's a powerful word, word. Horses, mares, dancing. I'm moving to a place with wild horses, so I love the word. I was glad you work with them, too. They're great to work with. He has a small private practice and continues to assist in the growth and development of Encompass. Now, seriously, Roger, I don't know many people that work with nightmares in groups, and that's a great idea. Okay, so anyway, uh, now... Nancy Rhodes, called the champion of American opera by Ronald Rand. Nancy is the longtime artistic director of Encompass New Opera Theater and the librettist for The Theory of Everything, which is a new opera. For those that don't know about it yet, it's a new opera inspired by physics' superstring theory of multiple dimensions and alternate universes. And we will be recording this podcast in two different universes, and my sound engineer will put it together later, so it's okay. At Encompass, she has staged scores of operas, about 70 all told, including Virgil Thompson's The Mother of Us All, Blitzine's Regina, Britain's Phaedra, Evan Mack's Angel of the Amazon, and the astronauts' tale at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And Nancy staged the world premiere of Kirke Mecham's Tartuffe for San Francisco Opera and Virgil Thompson's Lord Byron and Alice Tully Hall, as well as new operas for Brooklyn Philharmonic Orchestra and Pittsburgh Opera Theater. Her acclaimed production of Gregory Fried's opera The Diary of Anne Frank toured Cleveland Opera and was nominated for an Artistic Achievement Award. Nancy has directed operas all over the world. She's what you might say is a Rhodes Scholar. She's included. She's been to Stockholm, Finland, Istanbul, Amsterdam. She's spoken, conducted workshops in all through Europe, South America, Russia. You name it. She's been there. So, and eight years ago, she launched Paradigm Shifts, a music and film festival that brings indigenous cultures, women's wisdom, and social justice, environmental issues, in celebration of our planet, oceans, sacred lands, and wildlife. So, welcome to everybody. How's everybody doing today? Great. Good. Wonderful. Good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So, Nancy, I'm going to start with you, okay? Now, how, how did Encompass get started? And by the way, I, I love the name Encompass Opera. I mean, that's it's a big name, and it's circular, just like the planet. So, what does Encompass opera encompass, and what does it pass on? What does it leave out? It doesn't leave out anything. Um, and uh, so, seriously, how did you get started, and what's it all about, Nancy? Well, thank you so much, Glenn. It's uh, it's it's a joy to be here, uh, and 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 it's a joy to um, have had your beautiful prayer. Um, that you gave to us, um, uh, in, embodying all the elements of of mm. the universe, all living creatures, mm. and in a way, uh, the word encompass means to reach around, to embrace, to mm. embody. Uh, mm. to hold dear um, artists and music and ideas. And um, so actually an actress uh, wrote us when we sent a letter out early on, uh, we had some words and she wrote back and she said, I think you have the name of your company uh, in your letter. And she circled 
and compass. And we knew right away that was uh, the word Mm -hmm. that we um, felt uh, drawn to. So uh, many years ago, I was working at the Roundabout Theater, and I met uh, Roger Cunningham, uh, who was the technical director uh, and uh, a, a producer there. And so we connected and teamed up and eventually came together to start Encompass. Uh, We wanted to uh, bring new ideas of of theater uh, into into the realm. Um, But I'll just quickly go on to the next big turning point for Encompass uh, was when I met Virgil Thompson. Mm. Um, Many people may or may not know who Virgil Thompson uh, was, but he uh, was a a premier American composer, and um, he wrote two landmark operas with Gertrude Stein. Uh, One was called Four Saints in Three Acts, and another one was called The Mother of Us All. And so Mm. through a kind of fluke, I um, got together, um, and uh, Roger and I decided to produce this work, and um, that gave me the chance to go to the Chelsea Hotel in New York and meet Virgil Thompson. Um, He was 82, and I was in my 20s, and uh, we had a ball that day. I mean, he, he was an extraordinarily witty person. But um, uh, more than that, I told him some of my unusual ideas for staging The Mother of Us All. And here's the big moment uh, for a young artist speaking to a senior master artist. He said, yes, 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 I like your ideas. Yes. Ah, good. And then he jumped up and ran over to the piano and he began to play from the opera, The Mother of Us All, and began to sing. And I had learned the score, so I jumped in and sang with him. And so we were off uh, to the races, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And that led to a long um, uh, 10-year Uh, collaboration and friendship and mentorship uh, uh, with Virgil. Awesome. Wow. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, Gertrude Stein and the Chelsea Theater Boy. When when I had, uh, even before I was married to Tomoko, uh, my wife, I met in Japan. This was, let's see, in about 1987, we came to New York and we stayed at the Chelsea. <laughs> See, oh. The only time, because of the history, so kind of had to do it. So, so uh, we we had a great time. But but also um, in mentioning Gertrude Stein, I want to bring in Roger because um, I know that Encompass hit a bump in the road once that threatened to derail everything, the entire company, and and that's when he had a very special encounter with Gertrude Stein, the spirit of Gertrude Stein, and I want you to tell us that story, because I, I, I love hearing it. Uh, we had done um, Mother of a Faller 
in the village. And then the following year, we decided that we wanted to do the full opera with a little orchestra and everything. And uh, a colleague was starting a, uh, a, a discotheque in the village in Soho. And uh, he had a corner of it that he wanted us to build a theater in. So we were doing all of that. And uh, we were cast, we were in rehearsal, we were building the sets. And his business, uh, uh, the funding didn't happen. So he just like, well, we're closed, bump, bump. I said, what, what do you mean closed? You know, well, you got to get out. We got to get out. And they were locking the place up. So I left. And I was walking uh, uh, across Houston Street uh, to Houston Street. And I was crying my eyes up because I didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, we had everything there. We were ready to go, and boom, the doors locked. And um, I mean, I, I was just devastated. I didn't know what to do. And then I hear the music from somewhere from the score. All my long life, all my life of strife. And it's Gertrude Stein singing. <laughs> it's not Susan B. Anthony who sings the song in the opera. And it's not, you know, any of our singers who've done it. It's Gertrude Stein. And I mean, it's like, well, it, I mean, this stuff happened, so I wasn't upset about it. But it was like <laughs> amazing. You know, there, there's Gertrude Stein. And, and she said, what are you crying for? I said, well, I got this, you know, what, what am I going to do? And she said, well, you're going to have to solve it. What are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about it? And I said, well, uh, uh, I, this friend of mine, I think, has a theater, a church theater. Maybe I'll talk to him. He said, yes, you call him tomorrow and you get it going. I mean, as only Gertrude Stein could say. And the next day I got up and I called my friend and I said, yeah, I need your theater. I need to come in right now. He said, okay, boom. I went to his office. We signed the contract. And that night, with uh, two of my board people who were two women who were in their 60s, loaded out that show in a big truck and drove it uh, from uh, Soho to uh, this church in Lincoln Center. But it would have never happened if Gertrude Stein hadn't appeared. I mean, it was just amazing. That, that is amazing. And you're getting choked up just, just, just oh, from hearing you. Yeah. I mean, it was like the worst day of my life. I, I didn't know what to do. And the worst day of your life became the best day of your life. Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the way it is, right? Like that old Chinese tale about you never know what's good news or bad news. You know, the sun breaks his leg, but then he doesn't go to war. You know, I mean, it's like you just <laughs> you, you, you don't you don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's a. Uh, 
That's deeply moving stuff. So, uh, and thank you for being tapped into the into the spirit, the spirit, and and the and the, the spiritus just comes through. Gertrude Stein sings through you and and saves in Compress Opera Theater. That's it's pretty pretty awesome. So that brings me to my next question. I want to bring in uh, uh, John David Ernest. And uh, um, you're a composer, you know, you've written for orchestra, you've written for chamber ensembles, you've now written a full-length opera, The Theory of Everything, which is a, a you know, writing the music for, for um, some pretty powerful, all-encompassing concepts. So I want you to speak to us a little bit about your process. Where does music come from? Any? Where does music come from? You know, in the in 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 the in the world, and how does it flow through you? And how do you make music for deep philosophical concepts of interconnection? I mean, there's a lot of there's some good good strong pathos and uh, emotion in the in the theory of everything i read the wonderful libretto which uh, you know it's almost had me crying at the synopsis so so i i think it's i think i could see some of the music for that but how did how do you capture those concepts um talk to us about that well, composers who write for the theater, especially for the lyric theater, opera and so on, uh, face many challenges. Some of them are, are spiritual and aesthetic, and some of them are really just practical. Um, on the aesthetic side, um, you first begin with language. If you're setting words, that has a unique set of parameters around it uh, because sung language is not the same as spoken language for the obvious reason that sung language takes more time than spoken language. And so first you have to examine the word Prima la parola was the 18th century saying for it, and that was first the word and then the music, because opera uh, and music for opera springs out of the word. So the, the next challenge of writing music is to capture not only the spirit of the word and uh, but also the rhythm of the word. And that's not always easy. Uh, it's a, it takes a lot of uh, investigation into the way words move. Because mm. language has interior rhythm, it has external rhythms, and uh, setting it to music is a real challenge. So when I... Uh, when I began work uh, with this libretto, um, I have to read it through and begin to hear it as music in my inner ear. Sometimes things sing off of the page to me, which means 
they, a sentence or a phrase will leap off of the page and I will instantly hear how it might be set. Other times, I get nothing. And I have to struggle and say, well, this is the practical, the practical point of it. And the really challenging part is, how do you set complex language? For instance, if you have words which are multisyllabic, hmm. uh, it makes it more difficult. You'll, there's a very good illustration of this in popular music. And that is, most all popular music has single-syllable words. I love you. Yes, that, mm. The moon is blue. And so on. <laughs> very, very simple ideas. Um, and, and the reason is that if you sing that, then you have to grasp the rhythm of the word, but also the meaning of it. But it, the meaning, the time is elongated. I love you. Not. I feel a great deep affection for you. <laughs> that is not such an interesting song. But I love you is. So therein lies the challenge of setting words to music, and especially opera, because a libretto is a very unique kind of beast. Um, it's, a, it's not really a play, but it is the format of a play because it has a narrative arc to it. Um, so the language of a libretto it has to be crafted in such a way that it will be amenable to setting to music. Uh, Nancy has a gift that she's written many libretti and uh, she instinctively knows what might be set well to music. But there were other times that I found in libretto that she had ideas to explore and explicate, and they were ideas that were rather complex. And so I faced a real challenge with, well, I have no idea how to set this. And there's one example in the opera. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm. But um, one example in the opera is the second scene of the opera in which uh, one of the lead characters, Tomas, is doing a lecture in physics to his class. Now, I've never set a physics lecture before. (laughs) Naturally. It's not not something that rolls around in a commission very often. Okay. So that was a real challenge. Um, Let's hear the music from that that scene that you just described to see how you put music to a physics lecture. In this case, me. Then the 
second beam collides with the reflected light of the first beam, and the resulting interference pattern is recorded on film. To the naked eye, the image looks nothing like me. I'm just a pattern of swirling shapes, like throwing small stones in a lake. And the water ripples outward in ever-expanding circles. Now shine another bright light through the film. And suddenly I appear in three-dimensional form. Wave your hand, it wafts right through me. But that's not all. small pieces and amazingly when the light shines through each piece will reveal my complete image every tiny piece contains the What does this mean? Why the hologramic paradigm? It illustrates the concept of unbroken wholeness and the totality of resistance as an undivided flowing movement without That writes the whole. David Bohm, the physicist, realized that quantum mechanics portrayed no picture of the universe. It merely talked of measurements and observations without providing a view of how they connect. He looked at the mathematics of quantum theory to see what it implied and saw that it described a movement of waves that unfold and enfold throughout the They 
contains waves from everywhere which enfold this whole room, the whole universe, the whole of everything. Wow, Professor, amazing, incredible. What about this book? When the sister
Based on evidence from the quantum world, from Einstein himself. What? You want students to think creatively? They don't even have the skills to think logically. But I want to sign the fire of passionate action to participate in our living world. Only a few miles away, the rainforest is being cut down. Oil spills all over the planet. Glaciers melting. Ozone layer thinner than a butterfly's wing. We're in a race against time, Bruno. And our students must be prepared. <clears throat> Your eloquent plea is a worthy one. But diluting science and ignoring history, the mathematics of physics, all the forefathers in the field. This is not the way to teach, Cabral. But you want me to teach only classical physics, barely touch on quantum theory until later. And not even then dare teach the brilliant vision of David Bohm. He taught in this very university. He gave us a picture of an interconnected universe. And it could save us all. You sound like a cult. Follower, science is the measurable, the observable, the impersonal, the rational. Look, Thomas, here is the standard department policy. Follow it. To the letter, and we won't have any more unpleasant discussions. <laughs> Don't insult me with that absurd request. We're on a razor's edge right now, today. Our planet, our species, our very existence is at stake. I'm warning you. Cabral, you're on notice. Keep this. You are going to need it.
Wow. <laughs> That's an amazing accomplishment. Thank you. <laughs> That's a, uh, that, that, uh, thank you. Um, and, you know, the three of you, I, I, I want you to, to briefly discuss your feelings about uh, opera because you're a modern opera company. That's a fascinating thing to me uh, in, in and of itself because opera has this unusual role in society where, where um, originally, as I understand it anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, opera was, was very cutting edge, you know, um, when operas are just like your company is now, you know, and, and, uh, but most of the operas that people are listening to are capturing concepts that were uh, cutting edge then, but have, have since become under the umbrella of uh, classical or of some kind. I mean, it's not classical music, but it's a, but it's a, it, it doesn't, it isn't necessarily an evolving form. There are favorite operas that are played over and over again. But what, but what you, uh, Nancy, Roger, and John David, what you're doing here with opera, you are addressing important, urgent issues of modern society. And I know that you're... Uh, I know, Nancy, your encompass operas had... Uh, it's, it's a... An arm of the organization is doing these uh, um, the series on ecological themes, and you're you're addressing some of the urgent issues of society. So, uh, because frankly, if we don't clean up the the air, water, and soil, uh, we won't have anything. You know, as the as the. Uh, as the Cree proverb says, only when the last tree has been cut down, the last stream has been poisoned, the last fish has been eaten, will we learn that we cannot eat money? You know, so, so it's, um, so how do you see the, your role and, and how do you see opera, um, helping uh, uh, um, foster important, urgent change in society? That question's for everyone. And I well, go, maybe, I, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Okay, um, yeah. Um, well, opera or musical theater or any form uh, is, is telling stories. Uh, and storytelling is... Um, that is connected to real issues, emotions, people, um, is compelling and can draw us into a world to examine uh, what is going on. And I see our job as, uh, as creative artists, performers, our job is to think through, feel, experience, and reflect back uh, ideas and thoughts and feelings of, of where we are and what we're living through in the present. And uh, I feel this is um, our purpose and, 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 and mission. Uh, of course, we need to be uh, entertaining and inviting and engaging. Um, but we, we go through uh, periods where we really need to examine who we are, why are we here, what are we doing, um, how are we caring for our mm. planet, our mm -hmm. oceans, our wildlife, our sacred mm. lands. 
how are we caring about our people, each other, the children? Um, this is the stuff of life. And mm. uh, music, through the lens of music and storytelling, uh, we can reflect back some of the conflicts and challenges, uh, the different points of view, and how do we, um, where does that take us? And we want to involve the listener, the audience person, uh, to we want to engage them into a kind of dialogue uh, w- with us as we as we create uh, these works. So, um, just a, a, a sidebar: Virgil Thompson, as I mentioned, our, our uh, mm. composer uh, and mentor, um, he struggled with the place of American opera. Uh, This Mm. country has a long tradition of producing 19th century European masterpieces of opera. But now here we are in a new land. So how do we engage our creative artists and performers to reflect something that we're living through? And so he told me that it was difficult for people like Aaron Copeland, uh, Mark Blitzstein, um, many, many uh, composers, and several of them went to, to, to Paris, and that's how they met up with Gertrude Stein and uh, her salon, and then um, uh, continued to interact with American uh, writers like Hem- Hemingway was part of the salon, George Antile, a whole group of uh, Picasso. So it was the mm. mixture of artistic energy from many disciplines that uh, energized uh, the Americans that went there. Then the war broke out, and they came back and um, and uh, started to uh, write more and more, and eventually Encompass picked up in there. And so we focused for 44 years on the creation, development, and production of 20 and 21st century hmm. American opera. So that hmm. kind of sets us, that's, that's why we're, um, that's our special purpose niche. and mission. Yeah. yeah, niche, right. Niche, yeah, it's an ecological niche. And, 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 and Roger, uh, please add to that how you feel that the Encompass Opera is fulfilling this unique niche in addressing the problems and, and particularly add in how how does how does that uh, how is that how can that be psychologically healing for people what you're doing live theater is all about healing um so that's part music is very healing um the gap that happened in american opera is that we reframed it and it's called movies. So films are through scored as operas are. So many of the composers who might have been doing what we consider operas were in Hollywood through scoring movies. Mm-hmm. So we kind of lost that gap in there uh, where we didn't have Americans writing opera because they were writing film scores. So what we uh, try to do at Encompass and what we feel is we start with great 
stories, great, the great dramas. Uh, and if you look at the more uh, successful American operas, they've all started with uh, a, a wonderful play, a wonderful story. And because it's in um, English, people can understand it and can follow through with it. And the music is written in an American idiom. So we uh, know the music that we're listening to. We're not listening to European music. We're not listening to Italian music. We're not listening to French music. We're listening to American music. So uh, uh, Virgil uh, was had been a church pianist, so we'll hear church hymns in the middle of his opera, you know. Um, Aaron Copeland in Tenderland, which we did, our second opera we did, Tenderland, takes place in um, the Midwest in the uh, harvest season where you'd have uh, roving troops of uh, men who would go and harvest one field and they'd go to the next field and they'd move across the country doing all the harvesting, all the wheat harvesting. And in fact, my father had been one of those men. And uh, after we did Tenderland, I went home to Illinois and there was a steam engine show, which is where they had these old uh, farm steam engines before you had uh, gasoline tractors. And we went to that and we're in the middle of the prairie and they're like harvesting the wheat and they're showing how they did the threshers and that, 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 that. And I could hear the score from the tender land blowing across the field. Hmm. And there's a beautiful uh, um, song in there, uh, The Promise of Living. And I mean, I'm hearing it there. And I'm there with my father's showing me how the uh, um, thrasher machine worked. And he was the guy that, that like fed the bundles of uh, wheat into the thresher. And, you know, it's like, wow, you know, like, how did Aaron Copeland know how to do that? He was from Brooklyn. Brooklyn <laughs> <laughs> boy, write this song, and I'm here, and I'm hearing it there in the middle of the prairie, as it was in the tender land. Mm. So uh, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, event that sets American opera apart because it is about America. It's American themes, it's American mm. musical themes, it's American stories. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. And John and John David, I want your thoughts on the on the role of modern opera too, because you're a composer doing it. And I also have a question I just want to add to if you might be able to address, you know, is is music for you, is it is it local and connected to place? Do you feel music coming through a local place or do or or is it something you feel is kind of a non-local universal energy or perhaps both? So, uh, come on in. Uh, uh, well, since I write a lot of vocal music, uh, I have to plead what I've said before, and that is uh, the, lo the locality or the localness of the music is, springs out of the word. It's not rooted in any geographical location it's it's rooted in my head and and in my reaction to words and in my reaction to 
uh, shapes. Uh, I'd better explain that. Um, people often ask, do you hear things in your head? Well, yes, but they're not notes. That's not what I hear. I hear shapes. Mm. For instance, um, if if a piece, if I'm writing a piece that needs energy and lots of rhythmic activity and a force, a forceful drive to it, I don't hear the notes, but I do hear. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> That's the shape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or, uh, contrary-wise, I hear... I don't know what the notes are, but I know what the shape is. Cool. And then the task of composition and the technique of composition is to take those shapes and realize them into actual pitches. In other words, it's the force. It's the spiritual slash musical force mm. Mm. of the shape that you grasp first. I am so glad you said that. Oh, sorry. Go on. I just yeah. Well, no, I I think I said all I can say on. Oh, oh no. I I think that is one of the more fascinating uh, descriptions I've ever heard about the process. So you are a shape shifter. Thank you. Uh, and I just and it really makes me think because that kind of leads into what I wanted to. Uh, discuss also about the theory of everything, this amazing uh, uh, modern opera, which deals with time in the very fascinating way. And, uh, you know, I've often thought that, uh, and I, I bet you're going to agree, John Dew, I've often thought that time travel is approached the wrong way. I mean, we, we people, we think about... Um, uh, time without considering space and shape, as you might say. So I think the way the way to time travel is not on some you know little machine where you plug in dates and things like that. It's actually shifting the shifting of space is how you can get from uh, place to place and what we might call from time to time. I mean, there's so many fascinating ways to look at. Time. I mean, now uh, Nancy and I first met through the language of spirit dialogues that were held by the Seed Institute that I was the the founder and director of, uh, and these brought together indigenous uh, uh, philosophy with uh, quantum theory and other Western science. We were all in the same room. It was moderated by Leroy Little Bear the, uh, of the Kanai tribe of the, of the Blackfoot Confederacy. He's out of uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Um, and we, we did dialogues on everything we did from the very first question he asked, you know, is it possible to have an original thought to when we really, when we said our theme was time and origin. We were always dialoguing about time and space and that unique relationship. And, you know, for indigenous people, they're really more aligned more in the space, you know, the space and energy, where where the Western worldview is, was originally more tied to time and matter. It's almost like the West replaced 
place and put in time. That's why Western cosmologists, when you ask them, you know, about the origin of the universe, they only talk about when it happened. They never talk about where. They're not. They they don't care. You know, it's just an infinitesimal space, right? And then it expands someplace. You know, that's the only time they bring in place later. But well, you know, that, yeah, makes sense. Eating on that, what you just yeah. said. Uh, yeah. Musical time is extremely elastic mm. and it's constantly expanding or compressing. Um, it's amazing how certain how certain musical techniques can expand time much longer and you you feel like you've been listening to something for a very long time when in fact it really has not been that long. Conversely, there are moments that you, uh, certainly from a compositional point of view, you write something fast and you think, oh, this is going to be so exciting. And then you hear it in performance and it's gone in two seconds. Yeah. And what happened to that? I worked so hard on that. What happened to that music? <laughs> no, you're, you're hitting on some really important things. I mean, I once invited uh, Grandfather Leon Secatero, who, Nancy, you've, you've met Grandfather Leon, and, and Roger, I think you met Grandfather Leon. Um, and he was supposed to give an hour talk, and he actually arrived 45 minutes late, and lunch was after that. And I said was sad almost tears in my eyes, Leon, you have 15 minutes. And then I learned this great lesson. He expanded time. He spoke more slowly. And and he said the same thing he would have said in an hour, and it wasn't rushed. It was so beautiful and so eye-opening. And you're absolutely right, time is elastic, you know, and singers can do that, like uh, Billie Holiday and uh, Frank Sinatra, you know, they kind of sing sort of behind the beat or something. I don't know how they do it, but it's pretty elastic too. So anyway, I want to I want to bring back Nancy to ask her about um, the connection between the quantum world and the indigenous world and how that played into the theory of everything. You know, I mean, one thing that the quantum world and the indigenous world have in common is that they see everything as interconnected. So I guess I could quote something from your, um, geez, if I can remember it, the, uh, uh, yeah, Cassie says, step through the portal, trust it, open it, see the imprint of your soul with the eye of your heart. Oh, I found that so incredibly beautiful. What does that mean? Tell us more about it. <laughs> well, I, you know, like any any mortal, um, I'm going <laughs> I'm going through life uh, trying to um, interconnect with um, with spirit and uh, time and space. Um, so. Uh, uh, so just uh, just let me take a side division. Yesterday or the day before, I um, was at a memorial service mm. for uh, the wife of one of our composers, and his son 
um, is a physicist, actually a quantum physicist. Mm. And so we began talking and, and had quite a wonderful conversation. And he pointed out that we do not know what space is. No one knows what space is. I guess you could say it is. It is, it is that energy force uh, that, uh, that we're all part of. And as far as time goes, time, there is no time either. There's no past, present, future. That's all something we've created in our mind because we're living in eternal time and eternal space. So uh, we manifest and then we go back to spirit. And I personally believe that we can re-manifest again and again. Um, and so in my understanding of um, uh, holistic, indigenous uh, understandings is that beautiful total interconnection of all um, aspects of, uh, of the of the universe and that we are a flowing ever flowing um a part of that uh design uh, if you will so in of course i was learning some of this i i was very influenced originally back in 1989 i read an article in the new york times magazine section um mm. about a physicist named edward witten um mm. who um is a physicist uh, i i think he's still there at princeton and he actually was sitting in Einstein's chair. He had taken over Einstein's uh, uh, department. And um, uh, so I, I, he, he was talking about the theory of everything or string theory that says mm. that we live in multiple dimensions, at least 10. Now some people say 12. Uh, multiple dimensions simultaneously. Um, and that everything... In the universe, taken down to its smallest element, is actually waves, waves mm. of energy, everything mm. in the universe. Mm. So I became absolutely fascinated by this and wanted to know more. And in 1989, believe it or not, there wasn't so much written. And I would go to the bookstores and everywhere, and I would find books on physics, and they'd have a, a paragraph or two. And then later on, it became uh, more and more developed. So um, um, then I stumbled upon the writings of David Bowen. Mm -hmm. And there's a connection now with Seed and with Leroy mm -hmm. Little Bear, mm -hmm. because I understand that he was teaching uh, Native American studies at Harvard and at the time, and he read some of the books and writings of David Bohm and saw um, interconnections and connections between indigenous cosmology and understandings with the writings of the quantum physics that David Bohm was writing. And um, uh, I, too, uh, fell into the, the spell of David Bohm. And I, for years, jokingly called him my physics guru um, because he, he embodied uh, the spirit with the science that um, resonated uh, very 
powerfully for me. Mm. And um, so I, I do uh, refer to him, and I bring in some of the uh, ideas that um, that David Bowen puts forth, and um, and I also bring in uh, the idea of holograms. In fact, mm. that's uh, yes, that is. was that uh, piece that uh, <laughs> that JD or John David had to uh, set. Uh, observe the hologram produced when a single laser light is split into two separate beams. Uh, the first beam is bounced off the object to be photographed. And so, I mean, that was a bit of a challenge, I'm sure. Um, did you produce that in the in the opera? I mean, did you create that effect and create music well, through the hologram? I mean... <laughs> Well, we've we've only done a large uh, excerpted staged uh, um, uh, sections of the opera at this point, oh, and we okay. use projections. Uh, now mm. coming up when we do the world premiere, yes, we will have uh, 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 holograms uh, on the stage because it does figure throughout the whole opera. Mm. Um, the idea of light and laser beams being able to create a three-dimensional person. And they, they're experimenting more and more with holograms. It looks as if a living, real person is there, and it's just made with light. So um, that I found totally fascinating and wanted to explore what is the nature of reality. So um, mm -hmm, I, I yeah. read articles, uh, you know, Einstein and David Boehm taught at, at Princeton uh, together. They were colleagues and they would take walks together. And one of the articles I read that Einstein said, um, what is the nature of reality? That is the key question to ask. And so that began a um, the, the, the aria that Rachel sings in uh, Act 1, Scene 3, um, after she was in a terrible um, boating accident and, 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 and escaped, her consciousness escaped into the spirit realm. I guess you could call it a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear that aria now. Thank you. 
So, so uh, the, these are some of the ideas that I, I explored, and I took it. I took these ideas through three people: Tomas, the quantum physicist from Brazil, uh, who grew up in the Amazon from indigenous background, and then his wife Rachel, who was uh, uh, is a uh, documentary filmmaker, mm. and then their daughter Cassie. Uh, who's eight years old and has a big, big interest in um, astronomy. And so there's uh, two scenes, one in a planetarium in the beginning of Act One, and then there's uh, another scene in the planetarium in Act Two. So... Um, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to pin you down, though, Nancy. Now, this is not wrestling, but I'm going to pin you down here. Okay. Gonna, I would just want, I want you to address, if you can, you know, what 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 is that? What did that mean when Cassie says, "Step through the portal, trust it, open it, see the imprint of your soul with the eye of your heart," and also if Roger and John David have a have a thoughts on that because there's something about that phrase that was pretty it was very evocative to me i i thought wow there's a lot in here to unpack <laughs> well i mean to, to step through the portal to mean to me means to give over mm. to receive and accept the great universe and spirit and creator spirit that has um manifested all of us that we that we trust it we go with it we receive and um and that we are at any moment stepping through any number of portals and connecting our mind and soul and spirit as one they're not separated they can be separated to look at for a while but there mm. it's all one we are ultimately one um uh, and so that's that's uh, for the moment what it, what what it means for me. Beautiful, beautiful. And it's also it's also without giving away being a spoiler about the uh, uh, the plot or of the, of the libretto. It's it's a it's a it's a dialogue happening between those that are living and those that are not. You know, so so it's. It's uh, it's always fascinating to me to consider what indigenous people, the way they interact with their ancestors, and some other traditions as well in the West, too, have very robust ancestral interaction. Um, because, you know, uh, as... Uh, uh, who's the uh, the person that said? Um, oh, William Faulkner said, "You know, the past is not dead. In fact, it isn't even past." The, the energies and this, you know, we know from quantum theory, the energies of the past are still vibrating here. If we, if we, you know, use a Tibetan singing bowl and start a vibration, that vibration never ends. Just like you skip a rock on the water, it never ends. The, you just, it, it goes into the subtle realm, but it's still here. So somehow you're... Your opera is tapping into this kind of cosmic interconnection with subtle energies. That's pretty amazing. But I want to ask you guys in like three minutes that we have left, how is this going to help people solve the 
ecological problems of today um, that they're tapping into the subtle realm. Maybe it, I, I have some thoughts, but I want to know yours. Um, and and um, Roger, if you want to come back in. Okay. How is it going to help us today, right now, feel psychologically whole and sound? Uh, we're not. Um, a piece of fabric that's been cut up and we're just like floating there individually. We're all connected with this huge piece of fabric and we want to understand that we are a huge piece of fabric. We're just not, uh, I guess, like um, uh, a quilt, you know, which is like a lot of different pieces. Each one is unique, but it forms a complete a quilt. And mm. we are a quilt, and we are these unique pieces, but we are connected. And it's we're connected to our past. We can watch you in that program, finding our roots, and we find out, you know, go back centuries and who, where we came from, and we begin to become more real. We're just not this person that's here in 2021. We are all the way back there, and we are whoever our progeny is going to be, five or six, or what I think the indigenous say, seven generations forward and seven gener generations, generations previous, who, who we affect, and, and we want to be connected with all of that. And uh, I... I, I that the piece that I get from um, theory is that we we are all connected, and it doesn't matter. And uh, you know, we have uh, 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 blood too much, and we have a lot of relatives that are our brothers and sisters. And uh, you know, that's who it is. You know, uh, very good. Thank you. I have. Thank have uh, uh, many godchildren that, you know, are more important to me than I think if I'd even had a, a natural child. So we, we want to uh, understand that. Thank you. Thank you. And John, John David, and we've got 60 seconds, if you could add your final thoughts. Uh, How will it help thank us today? You. Well, the purpose... One of the many purposes of art is to inform, to educate, to transform, to elucidate, and to bring into consciousness for all those who are listening and willing to hear things that matter about our existence and about our world. And that's one of the things that Nancy has put into her libretto and i've tried to enhance with music well thank you thank you all i mean this um we've spoken a, a fair bit about the theory of everything it's an incredibly impressive modern opera there's a lot of other works encompass opera has done and uh, uh that you as individuals have done different works but i i do encourage listeners when is this world premiere i want to be there now Nancy. 
Well, we're, we're still putting it still in the planning stages. It's it was supposed to be during COVID. Yeah, but I, understand. It, I would say 2023. 2023. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Good. That's uh, that gives us a little bit of time, because this this is the time. COVID did teach us how much we are interconnected. In fact, you know, we're interconnected with the microbial world. You know, the microbial world is is 95% of our DNA. <laughs> so it's, we're, we are we are the microbes. So so that's why I've always prayed to those germs that germinate and create life and we have to come back into balance and wholeness so thank you so much Wow, what a great program. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and Web Talk Radio, Native Flute Music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD, Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey, post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on earth. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Listen Notes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us and you can you can find and purchase my books, Original Thinking, Original Politics there. So thank you for listening and until next week, many blessings of good health and well-being to all. Thank you so much, uh, Nancy, John, David, Roger. Thank you for being here today. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.